morning, everyone. It's good to see you here in person and for those watching on Facebook and YouTube. Um, We're continuing with our series uh, on the Gospel of Mark. Um, You can bring the slides up now. Uh, Just to let you guys know, we have a core value here at Grace Life. We believe that every, every word in Scripture is important. So because of that, we have a style that kind of really makes us go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through different books. That's kind of the purpose of everything that we do. And so uh, we're continuing that with our series of Mark. We probably only have about six messages left. And then we'll take one week off, and then we'll start on the the book of Jonah, which I'm excited about coming right after this. Uh, I'm kicking around some titles for that series if you want to enter a contest. And don't even think about fishtails. Don't even... The one that got away, nothing like that, okay? This week our message is called Admiration Isn't Worship. So if you could name one person who you admire, who is it? And you guys know me very well for years. For me, it's always been Tom Brady, always. No, it's just been about a year for that, but still. Admiration is a good thing, right? I mean, when you admire someone, they possess qualities or character that you aspire to have in your own life. And obviously, Jesus is someone who is greatly admired even by people who don't even consider him to be God. There's a lot to admire, right? I mean, some people admire Jesus for his social justice wokeness, the things he teaches about helping the poor and taking care of children and orphans, and he talks about equality. And and when people, even people who don't believe in Jesus, hear those things, they nod in approval, yet oftentimes not really doing much of those things with their own resources or their time. Some admire Jesus for how he stands against corruption and hypocrisy from the powerful, especially religious hypocrisy. And, of course, some, that's their favorite hammer to beat up on Christians who struggle with hypocrisy, isn't it? Some admire Jesus for what he has to say about marriage, sexual immorality, finances, being called to righteous living. We admire that, meanwhile, judging everybody else who may not fall into those same levels of success that we consider ourselves to have. I mean, Jesus is in many respects, the most famous person in human history. The world, even this room, is full of people who are Jesus admirers. But I think, in many respects, that admiration is really a cop-out. It's a cheap way for someone to pay homage without actually worshiping Jesus. And let me explain. It's a way to seem like you care about spiritual things. Like when Jesus says, though, for example, he's the only way to God, that he's the final authority on all spiritual matters, well, many don't really care to admire something like that, do they? See, admiring Jesus without embracing everything he says Everything is to fabricate a substitute version that replaces the real one. A Jesus 
who is more able to coexist with our sinfulness and our selfish agenda and our desires or even our politics or our personal finance issues. It's a Jesus the whole world can admire and embrace. That's what we're talking about today. A Jesus who was admired but not worshipped. Mark chapter 15, it's actually a long passage. We're taking bigger chunks now because the story is <clears throat> really getting intense. There's only two chapters left, 15 and 16. And so this is the first 15 chapters of Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused Jesus of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner, it was usually a political prisoner, for whom they asked. <clears throat> and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Release us a political prisoner. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the Sanhedrin or the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them yell, release for us Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the men you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Look at the history of this passage. Each passage has three applications. There's the historical, what about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? Then there's the spiritual or theological, what about God and why and how did he do what he did? And the last one is the personal, what about me? What am I supposed to do and why and how do I do it? Look at the historical. I want to talk about the obvious political pressure. So Rome is watching. <clears throat> Caesar had one simple goal in all of his empire. He wanted to rule all the different regions Rome had conquered in an orderly manner for this purpose. They wanted taxes to flow back to Rome. And over centuries of rule, Rome learned the best way to do that was this type of shared governance where they would work together with local indigenous leaders. For example, the Sanhedrin had this local jurisdiction in Judea, or Israel, and they had jurisdiction over local Jewish religious and cultural issues. Because Jewish people, think about it, were more likely to submit to an authority that was from their own people rather than authority from Rome or Caesar in these little local cultural matters. But Caesar also had a Roman governor in every region who was the final authority on all major matters. Here, it happens to be Pilate is the face and the voice of Caesar. And now Judea was this, it's very interesting, Judea was of all the regions that Rome had conquered, all of them, the most tumultuous was Judea. The Jews would never sit still. They were always struggling to try to figure out a way to kick Rome out. And so because of that, Pilate was always kind of struggling to find this delicate balance between local Sanhedrin rule and Roman authority. And Pilate didn't make anything easier when he initially took 
control. When he first came into Judea several years later, he complicated things with local authorities by coming in with a massive army in a very harsh way, overbearing way. It was really a bloody entrance into Jerusalem and Judea. And this heavy-handed authority, this authoritarian style that Pilate had created a distrust and a conflict that resulted in constant numerous uprisings and revolts and sedition, people trying to rebel against Rome in Jerusalem. And Caesar was not happy about this pattern. So Pilate, understand, is in a very precarious position here politically. He can't afford any more unrest in Judea or Caesar will replace him and frankly kill him. But the Sanhedrin understand if they want to execute Jesus, this is something they cannot do without Rome's approval. They had wide authority, but they could not sentence someone to death unless Pilate gave permission. So they bring Jesus to Pilate with a list of false charges in the area of sedition and insurrection and rebellion, along with a threat with this crowd of civil unrest if Pilate doesn't do what they think he should. So they're trying to take advantage of Pilate's political vulnerability. He's been in Jerusalem, Pilate has, all week for this feast, for Passover, right? Because there's a million people in the city. It's six or seven times larger in population than normal. He wants to make sure that order is maintained during the feast. He doesn't need another uprising in Jerusalem during this week. It's a political trap to get Pilate to do what they want him to do. So understand, Pilate hated the Jews. He hated the Sanhedrin, and he knew they were religious hypocrites too. He was more of a secularist, but they were supposedly religious, but he says, they're no better than me. They do all the same stuff I do. He doesn't want to capitulate to them with this sham trial. He wants a way out, but Pilate knows why they hate Jesus. It's not because they're righteous. It's because they're jealous of Jesus, afraid Jesus will destroy their power base. And frankly, Pilate says, look, there's no evidence of anything wrong. Pilate knows Jesus isn't this ridiculous, violent insurrectionist. He's not seeking to reestablish a Jewish monarchy. Matter of fact, he saw Jesus come into Jerusalem at the height of his popularity on Palm Sunday, remember? And Jesus had all these crowds of people saying, King, King of kings, Lord of lords, Hosanna. And Jesus did not use that against Rome. You know who he did use it against? The people who were in charge of the temple. He watched Jesus in the temple courtyard call out the Sanhedrin's spiritual hypocrisy and corruption day after day. Pilate has seen all this firsthand. He knows who Jesus has really come after, and it's not Caesar. And the Sanhedrin knew that Jesus consistently refused, ironically, interestingly enough, Rome was not perfect, but Jesus consistently, get this, refused to criticize the government of Rome. Jesus reserved all his criticism for the religious. And when he was asked about big Rome, about big government authority, here's what he taught. Well, all power is God's to give. The only reason they have power over you is because my father has given it to them. And when he was pressed about taxes, what do you do with Roman taxes? He says, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you know what he did right after that? He paid his taxes. (laughs) He paid them. Both Pilate and the Sanhedrin know that Jesus is innocent But this isn't about justice, it's about politics. It's about self-preservation. And it's about Pilate's political vulnerability that puts him in a precarious, untenable position that won't enable him to release Jesus. 
Because if he doesn't fulfill the Sanhedrin's wishes, here's what happens. They go to Caesar and say, hey, Caesar, you know that guy Pilate? We brought him somebody who was trying to rebel against your empire, and he wouldn't do anything about it. And Pilate knows he's in big trouble. So that's the historical setting. Let's look at the spiritual. What about God, and what does he do? I've titled this section, Two Sons of God. So Jesus, King of the Jews. As Pilate listens to these charges read against Jesus, Pilate is, the scripture says, amazed that Jesus won't defend himself. The only charge Jesus does answer is when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, the gospel of John gives the full, complete answer with all the details. How Jesus said, I'm more than just the king of the Jews. All authority on earth comes from heaven. The only reason you have authority over me is because my father has given it to you. That, I mean, it was a really long kind of explanation. By the way, the Romans believed this. The Romans believed that if you had authority, it's because the gods gave it to you. Did you know that? Each Roman, like the Caesar, thought he was divinely appointed. It makes sense to Pilate. Pilate is impressed with Jesus. He's amazed, the scripture says, at how Jesus seems to have, get this, a higher purpose than the Sanhedrin who are so focused on this world. As a matter of fact, I want to show you a Greek word. It's pretty amazing. It's not just impressed. Here's the Greek word, thomazo. The word actually means to have admiration and to marvel in wonderment. So the scripture says that Pilate didn't, wasn't just amazed. Pilate admired Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's the same word to describe Jesus' first interaction with the Sanhedrin when he started teaching about the Old Testament uh, prophets. They thalmazo, they admired Jesus. The crowds were the same way. When Jesus would work these miracles and teach incredible Old Testament stuff and he would outsmart the Sanhedrin, the scripture says they were thalmazo, they admired him. But Pilate sees the Sanhedrin as nothing more than political idiots. But he sees in Jesus someone who is far greater than anything the Sanhedrin has to offer. This interaction with Jesus has a significant impact on Pilate. And Pilate declares, I can find nothing wrong with this guy. And no matter, however, how much that he admires Jesus, that admiration, get this, and this is the sad part. He admires Jesus. This guy's really smart. He's really good. He's innocent. He's a cool dude but it's impotent when it comes to transforming Pilate's heart. And then this is the fascinating part of the story, Barabbas and Jesus. So Pilate's trying to wiggle out of this political trap by using the custom of releasing that prisoner I told you about. <clears throat> the tradition was started by Pilate to ease the tensions that he frankly caused with his mismanagement. It was an annual show of good faith, so he picks Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is very interesting. He is a notorious insurrectionist who hated Rome so much he was willing to murder other Jews who didn't agree with his radical ways. That's who Barabbas is. He's a Jew-murdering insurrectionist. Barabbas would do anything to overthrow Rome, including murdering sympathizing Jews like the Sanhedrin. His name, check this out, Barabbas. <clears throat> so, do you notice a familiar word in there, Abba? Remember I've taught you guys what Abba means? It means daddy. It's not just father, it's an endearing term, daddy. And bar always meant son. Barabbas' name means son of God, son of the father, son of daddy. That's what Barabbas' name is. 
Isn't it fascinating? Barabbas is named son of the father, and he's offered up as an option against the actual son of the father. The San, isn't that just really cool? The Sanhedrin's depravity and obsession with this world is so great, it creates in them an insatiable desire to substitute the real son of God with a fake one. And of course, we know they choose Barabbas. <clears throat> you know, everyone in this story admired Jesus at one time or another. For three years, the crowd admired Jesus' miracul miraculous things that he did. He admired, he admi they admired how Jesus would outsmart the Sanhedrin. And a few days earlier, just this week, this same crowd that's yelling, crucify him. A few days earlier, they admired Jesus in the temple doing many of the things that they love about Jesus for his teaching. The scripture says they were thalmazo. They were admiring how Jesus taught in the temple. But in the end, for this crowd, it's easier to side with the establishment, the Sanhedrin, and choose Barabbas, son of Gad, over Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. The Sanhedrin also admired Jesus in the past, particularly his understanding of the Old Testament prophets and scripture. But ultimately, their love of the things of this world kills their admiration for Jesus, and they also choose Barabbas instead. And we see in this story, Pilate admired Jesus too. His innocence, his confidence, Jesus' belief in something greater than this world. But Pilate also chooses Barabbas over Jesus to maintain a good relationship with Rome and Judea. They all admired things about Jesus that they liked. But in the end, none of them really wanted the real Jesus, did they? Because he would cost something. What about us? What are we supposed to do with this passage? Here was the uh, Sunday sermon preview, the social media campaign for this week. <clears throat> Don't be confused. Admiring Jesus isn't the same as worshiping him. I'm going to say some harsh things this morning. Admiration is easy. Because it doesn't require <clears throat> an investment that's in a world beyond this one. Admiration looks spiritual. It even sounds spiritual. I admire Jesus. But it really is powerless to have any really change to affect and transform your life. Admiration, you know what it does? Admiration allows you to create an opening to develop in your mind a Jesus who fits your agenda better than the real one, one who fits your desires and your sinful lifestyle, one who won't crowd in too much and meddle too much. That's what an admiration Jesus is. Fact of the matter is, admiring Jesus is a cowardly substitution for worship by those who are, in fact, unwilling to commit yet to making Jesus their full Lord and Savior. That's admiration. And frankly, we get a lot of pressure from the world because you know why? The real Jesus isn't in agreement with the Jesus the world wants. They want a different Jesus. They want a Barabbas as well. I mean, the Jesus who claimed he's the only way to salvation that you must repent, that Jesus is not admirable. 
That Jesus is arrogant. The Jesus who claims to be God or creator with power over death, that's not an admirable Jesus. Admirable Jesus. That is a psychopathic Jesus. You can conquer death. That's an offensive Jesus. Like this Jesus here too. When Jesus said this, either you believe in me or you will die in judgment. Well, that's not a very admirable message for the world, is it? In this postmodern world especially. See, it's a radical, narrow-minded, dismissive of all the other religions type of Jesus that they don't want anything to do with. That's an offensive message. The world wants what I have called in the past in other sermons, the world would rather have society, Jesus. The great moral teacher, the philosopher, the social justice warrior. They want a Jesus who embraces universalism, minimizes repentance, and doesn't condemn immorality, for example. Just as the Sanhedrin wanted a different son of Abba, the world demands the same choice from us, the church. They apply pressure to create a substitute Jesus, less offensive, less demanding, one they can admire without having to worship him. That's too costly. A Jesus that even an atheist or a secularist can admire, containing only those noble qualities and teachings of Jesus that they can fit into their worldview. And that results in our Barabbas. Out of fear, many in the church are tempted to give the world a Barabbas, a pathetic, counterfeit substitute instead of the real Jesus, the one they actually desperately need. A watered-down, filtered version that mitigates the offensive, politically incorrect things Jesus said throughout his ministry. But sadly, many Christians like that version too. One that keeps us personally comfortable with our sin we aren't quite ready to repent of and give up yet. And you know what yours is. I don't have to give you a list. That makes you an admirer, just like Pilate. Keeping a safe distance from the Jesus who might cost you just a bit too much to worship. A little too much effort to follow. It makes us when we fall into that trap, just like the Sanhedrin, putting personal, worldly success and pleasure before the kingdom of heaven. It makes us like the crowd choosing a different son of Abba than Jesus. We are, in fact, when we do this, choosing Barabbas. And it is, in fact, a feeble, anemic, admirable Jesus, powerless to transform lives or save souls from eternal separation from God. So I have a question for you. Admiration or worship? So you're impressed with Jesus? You admire him? Big deal. That means nothing. Admiration is impotent and powerless to save you. Admiring Jesus won't transform you or anyone else you might want to introduce to him for that matter. Are you merely an admirer of Jesus? I mean, what's the difference between an admirer and a worshiper? Would you like to know? I'm glad. I have some lists here for you. <laughs> worship, get this, worship will shrink 
the distance between the presence and power of Jesus and a yearning soul who is searching for purpose. That's the first way you know you're a worshiper. Worship inspires a courageous embrace of who Jesus says he is, no matter the consequences or the costs. Worship generates an appetite for repentance, willing to leave behind the things of this world so that we can effectively follow Jesus. An insatiable appetite for repentance. Worship also creates an appetite for anything Jesus teaches. On finances, social justice, sexual purity, the exclusivity of the gospel to save men. You know what else worship does? It emancipates us from the cancer, which is FOMO, the fear of missing out on the world's pleasures. Because we recognize as worshipers, not admirers, but as worshipers, he's the only thing that truly satisfies our soul. Now listen, worship doesn't mean perfection. Do you hear me? It doesn't mean you're perfect. But what it does mean is you are humble, you are sacrificial, and you are desiring consistent devotion to our full Jesus. See, a worshiper, get this, this is important. This is, this is key. An admirer will resent when Jesus gets too close or starts meddling too much. A worship will never resent having to do these things. A worshiper will have an insatiable craving for these things. And when we are consistently failing to pursue those cravings, we'll know it as worshipers. Man, I'm not connecting with my Jesus. Something ain't right. Because we will feel the emptiness. We will feel the patheticness of this life. We will feel unfulfilled. And we won't sometimes even be able to put a finger on it. We will feel like we are wandering. Admirers never wander. They just drift away. Worshippers feel disconnected when we wander. See, admiration of Jesus can't do any of this for you. So why do you want to waste your time just admiring Jesus? Well, that's silly. Especially when you have the opportunity as a child of God to worship him. Dear Jesus, <clears throat> we confess to you that many times we stop at admiration. We don't want to do that. Yes, you're admirable. Yes, there are great things about you. Even things the world who doesn't love you can appreciate. But we need to be different. Lord, fill us with that insatiable craving to follow, to repent, to trust, to believe, to obey. And when we fail, Lord, make us uncomfortable. Make us feel like we're missing something. Lord, I pray that you would I pray that you would, for, for hearts in here, 
that are recognizing today, maybe for the first time, wow, all I've really ever done in my life is admire Jesus. At this moment, Lord, we pray, turn them into worshipers today. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you guys. Have a great week. We love you, those that are watching from home. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back. We'll see you next week.